I realized this story is much bigger than I thought. It's bigger than myself. It's bigger than just some article. This is something that is severely impacting young girls, and I can't believe it's hardly been reported. Young journalists often have a hard time finding a job. This week, we meet a reporter who created her own opportunity and ended up telling a huge story. I'm Michael O'Connell, and this is It's All Journalism. Lisa Khoury is a multimedia journalist who recently finished a project about refugee Syrian girls for the Times of Israel. Welcome to the podcast, Lisa. Thanks, Mike. I'm going to start by reading the lead to your story, which is titled, Forced into Abuse Marriages, Syrian Child Brides Increasingly Turn to Suicide. West Baqa, Lebanon. 14-year-old Salwa chugged the bleach for as long as she could. She ignored the agonizing burn going from her throat to her stomach. She tuned out the sound of gunfire outside her kitchen window. It wasn't the Syrian war she was trying to escape. It was her marriage. And that's pretty dark stuff to start out a story. So tell me about, before we go even go into this story, this dark story, you know, what was your, your journey in journalism and how did you end up in Lebanon to, to write this story? Yeah, it is a dark lead. And, and I'll tell you exactly why I chose to lead with that and stuff. But um, I'm glad you asked about how I even got started, because I do think it all leads to this trip to Lebanon and this story specifically. I'll try to make a long story short, though it is, it's kind of a funny story. Well, take your time. All right, cool. (laughs) I was, uh, by the way, this is my first podcast ever. So if I sound a little nervous, I'm sorry. Oh, every, every podcast is a new one for me. So (laughs) don't worry about it. Okay, great. So when I was 19 years old and I was attending the university at Buffalo, I was beginning my sophomore year and still had no idea what I wanted to do with my life, but I knew I loved writing. And so I joined the student newspaper there and just immediately fell in love with reporting. A couple months in, see, we had a, the University at Buffalo, also called UB, has a, um, a student-run paper, right? So we don't have anyone, any advisor telling us what to do. We don't have a student government controlling us or funding us. And so that freedom is amazing because you really get that hands-on experience But you also can make really big mistakes with no one really stopping you. And so a few months into my time as a journalist, someone in our newsroom office suggested we write a point counterpoint column about tattoos because I had expressed that I didn't want to get a tattoo. And they thought that was weird. My friends were like, that's weird. You're the only person, you know, we know that wouldn't get a tattoo. And my one friend said, why don't you write about why you wouldn't? And I'll write why I would. So we did that, and mine went viral online all over the world. I got hate mail for months on end from people, you know, really offended by the fact that uh, I was speaking down about tattoos, and admittedly I was. I mean, I was 19. I was pretty narrow-minded at that time in my life, and the way I structured the story and the way I wrote it um, really did sound like I was talking down about people. Uh, who choose to get tattoos. And so long story short, I first went through this like little depression, those first few days of getting all that hate mail. And then I kind of had an epiphany by the end of the week. And I realized, oh my gosh, if I can touch so many people around the world with my words, what if I can do so in a positive way? And so I would say from that moment forward, I was determined 
to be a journalist who could just tell stories that can make an impact. Wow, that's, that's pretty cool uh, that you, you were able to take something that was so negative and see the, really kind of what the, you know, the freedom that it provided you, the, sort of the way it, it helped you to choose your path. So we're still, we're still not in Lebanon. How do you get there? So a couple more things happened at UB, I think, that, that really led me to Lebanon. I was a news reporter and ended up running the news desk at, at the Spectrum, which was the newspaper. And I did two really in-depth stories that took me several months. One took me five months. The other took me nine months. I would just work on them on the side. I became like obsessed with investigative journalism. And they went on to win these really big awards. Uh, one of them won first place in the country for in-depth reporting from Society of Professional Journalists, wow. which no one at UB in the history of UB had ever won. And so I realized I specifically want to be an investigative reporter. So after college, I was at an internship at the Buffalo News. Great place, great people. But one of the editors there, I'll never forget, had told me, if you want to be an investigative reporter, you know, you can't just be an investigative reporter. You have to be a day-to-day -day reporter for years, you know, covering a beat at a small paper or doing whatever you need to do to gain that experience. You know, maybe 10, 15, 20 years, you can join an investigative unit of some newspaper. And in my heart, I was like, well, that's not what I want to do. You know, I was so disappointed. And uh, on top of that, I thought I wanted to get into TV. Mm. And it's very hard to do in-depth in -depth reporting in TV. But nonetheless, uh, I moved to New York City for seven months and I did an internship at ABC World News. After that, I thought, you know, I need to get a job right away. I didn't take the time to really determine what job would be best for me. I just knew I needed a job in TV. And so there was a producer opening back in Buffalo in my hometown, moved back, took that job. And for almost two years, I just wasn't satisfied in what I was doing. And I knew I could have worked during those two years to take the leap to TV reporter, but something in my heart was telling me maybe that's not for me and that I miss those times at UB when I could just dive into a story and do something that I felt really mattered. And so I was in this rut, this pretty negative time in my life. And my best friend, who's also my cousin, had told me she wants to go to Lebanon and volunteer with Syrian refugees. And wow. Lebanon is where our parents were born. And it, it's a place we grew up visiting and a place we grew to really love. And so I thought, you know what, this is my chance. I'm going to go with you and I'm going to try to be a freelance reporter there. Wow. That's a pretty big leap. I mean, you, you were comfortable with the country, but, you know, going to a completely different country to, you know, try and start up and you didn't, you didn't have any leads to jobs or anything? Nothing. So I had um, a friend in the business had told me, you know, before you go, you should reach out to some editors, let them know you'll be there, see if they'll need anything. And I did. I reached out to as many news outlets as I could find. But, well, some said, yeah, send us some pitches while you're there. Some just didn't answer. Some said they don't take freelance work. And so I went pretty much with an open slate and just had no idea what was going to come from it. Okay, so so you get to Lebanon and, you know, tell me about the experience, you know, starting out, you know, trying to find stories to write and, and uh, 
you know, outlets are going to run those stories and so that maybe you could actually make money to live? Excellent question. It was the most stressful experience of my life. So I had saved up a good amount of money those two years producing. And so I went in there with enough money to get me through. I didn't know how long I was going to stay. It wound up being eight months. I also lucked out because my family has a house there. And so utilities and electric and everything is pretty cheap in Lebanon. So I didn't have to worry about paying rent. Food is super cheap. So, you know, I was used to the country a bit just from visiting it, but living there was a totally different experience. So what I thought in my head was, you know, as a writer, I would go to Lebanon and I would see all these things happening, you know, all these injustices and things that could never fly in America. And I thought, oh, I'm going to easily find some stories here. And of course, an editor and a news outlet is going to want to run these stories. And so I would kind of just anything I saw. I mean, my first day in Lebanon, I went to get a cell phone, well, a card for my cell phone. So it would work overseas. And the boy working there was 10 years old. (laughs) He was a 10 year old Syrian. I thought, boom, I go home. I write the pitch, right? I had interviewed him and everything, sent it to a bunch of places, and everybody said no. And that was the moment it hit me. Okay, this is going to be a lot harder than I thought. And that was the story of my life for the first few months. I arrived in Lebanon April 26, 2017, Mm -hmm. sold my first story in July. Wow. Uh, I don't remember the exact date, but I want to say mid-July. So, so it's a pretty incredible story, and the fact that you put yourself so far out there on the limb is pretty admirable, uh, <laughs> pretty pretty brave. So, how did this child bride story come about? You know, how did you find out about it, and you know, what kind of planning did you put into it? The child bride story came because that first story I told you about that I sold in July, that yep. was a story about child labor. Um, so actually the 10 year old boy at the cell phone store was part of it. But what I did was after everybody told me, no, I realized, you know, the story wasn't developed yet. And I went around Lebanon to areas with high concentrations of Syrian refugees. And I would find these little boys working and I would ask their background stories and find out, you know, a lot of them are carrying a lot of trauma from Syria that they have not been able to process or deal with because Once they come to Lebanon, they're just thrown into the workforce because their parents don't have time to, you know, help them develop emotionally or even send them to school. These refugees, most of them are in survival mode. And so if a young boy can work, he's going to be taken out of school. And that's what his life is going to be dedicated to. And so my story in July, which I published with Vox, not Fox, V-O-X, Vox. Okay, with Vox.com? Yes. Cool. It was all about Syrian child labor and specifically the psychological toll it was taking on young boys. But what I noticed was, you know, every kid who worked was a boy. And I'm like, well, where are the little girls? You know, what's happening to young Syrian girls when they cross the border? And just knowing from, you know, growing up in the States and working in news for most of my adult life, When we hear about Syrian refugees, we hear about the 
life or death situations they're in, right? So, okay, which areas of Syria are in war and how many people is it affecting? And then once they are able to leave and they become refugees, it's no longer about how many are dying. It's about, okay, how many need food and shelter? But what I wanted to know was the emotional impact and the psychological impact that these people were dealing with. And throughout my time pitching stories, a lot of editors were not interested in the Syrian crisis at all because they would say it's old. You know, the the war started in 2011. Here I am, it's 2017, trying to publish all these stories about Syrians. And these editors are like, listen, our barometer when it comes to the Syrian crisis is very high because we've we've covered it. But I didn't care because I, I still wasn't seeing the type of stories that I wanted to see, which again was really just taking a deep dive into how they're all being affected as time goes on and as they still can't return back home, how that's affecting them emotionally, specifically young people. And I don't know if that's because I can relate to young people. I've always felt super fortunate just being able to grow up in the States. My parents had a totally different upbringing. And then every, you know, so often when I would go visit Lebanon with them, I would just see kids my age, much smarter than me, you know, much more skilled than me, just with no opportunity to use those smarts and to use those skills. And so I kind of just became obsessed with how young Syrians were feeling. So that being said, when I started asking around, you know, all these boys are working, what happens to the girls? I started hearing that a lot of girls end up getting married off because while these Syrian refugee parents are in survival mode, they need to worry about just that, how to survive, just eating, where they're going to sleep, having a roof over their head. And with each child comes an expense. So if you can marry a girl off, you're saving yourself money because that's one less mouth to feed but also in a way you're saving her because you're giving her some financial stability now an older man can take care of her can feed her and so they look at it as they're saving the daughter as well not to mention saving her from sexual abuse that's another topic well according to your story this practice that that appears to be positive, you know, helping people, helping the family, you know, find somebody to, you know, take care of their daughter and, you know, the daughter finding a husband. I mean, on the surface, it appears, okay, maybe unfortunate, but it seems like it's a positive step. But that's in your reporting. That's not something you've found. Exactly. And it could be. It could be that the girl gets married and everything's okay. You know, maybe she doesn't get beat. Maybe she's not forced to have sex all the time, and she's okay. I've met girls like that, but my point was, this is not the life they chose, regardless. And so each girl carries some type of trauma with her. Just having your childhood ripped from you, that in itself isn't fair. And so, yeah, I tried not to have a bias either. I mean, I sound biased talking about it, but when I would go to the girls and ask them, you know, I kept it very open. And a couple of them told me, you know, everything's okay. Everything's fine. But I felt like they were almost desensitized and no one had ever asked them how they felt because that never mattered. And so they didn't even know how to express that what they were going through and what they were feeling wasn't good because 
there was no option. This was the life that they had to accept. Right. And, and just, just to be clear, how old are these, these girls that we're talking about? When I met them, many of them were in like their late teens. One was about 20, 21, but they would tell me the stories of when they got married younger. The youngest girl I met, she actually wasn't in the story. She got caught out of the story, just editing reasons, but she was 13 when she got married. So that was the youngest child bride. But there are reports of girls who were as young as 10 or 11 who also got married. Wow, that's, that's pretty amazing. I mean, you know, clearly the fact that they're refugees, their options for survival, for for just existing are, are kind of limited. And the fact that they're children and that they're uh, young women, you know, also creates you know, problems for them as well, limits what they're able to do and, and what their, their family is able to do. Because it's not like, you know, these families are in great shape anyway because they're refugees and, and they're sort of limited by the types of jobs and opportunities that they have. So it's interesting. And what I like about this story and what I really kind of admire about it is it's a very human story. It's got the voices of the uh, young women in it. And, you know, what you were saying before about the the news outlets kind of having this sort of higher barometer about their their coverage of of the Syrian story. I mean, you know, here's a very human story, a sort of tragic situation that's going on that people don't know about. I think that's kind of the power of it. Exactly. And also, before I get into that, I just want to say, um, reflecting on my last answer, I had said, you know, some of the girls said they're OK, but just to briefly say. Many of these girls, almost all of them told me that they were raped and a few of them told me how they tried to commit suicide. And so those were the girls that I focused on. I focused on the girls going through very traumatic um, experiences. So I didn't want to downplay sort of what child brides can go through. As a journalist, you know, going into what's clearly a very difficult story to cover you know, tell me about your, your process. How did you, how did you report this story? You know, what was it that you were, what kind of moved you forward through it? And then sort of what decisions did you make about how you were going to present it? I could have given up several times. Writing this story was just an obstacle course, (laughs) to say the least. When I first started, you know, hearing that young girls were getting married, I thought, okay, this is it. This is going to be my investigative story. But the locals, some of my neighbors in Lebanon, really tried stopping me. And they would tell me, you know, these girls, their husbands are going to come after you. There's no way these girls are going to open up to you. Not only is it a sort of private subject, but in Middle Eastern culture, you don't talk about your marriages and what happened. People are very private. Syrian culture, you know, marriage is considered a very private thing. And for a young girl to just rat on her husband with a stranger, not to mention a stranger from America, you know, that's never going to happen. And so people were really discouraging me. Once I would get to these camps, I decided to go to places that had the most Syrians. So where I lived in Lebanon, it was about a three hour drive to get to the areas with the highest concentration of Syrian refugees. And so I took like, initially, I took this 10 day trip to West Bacaw. And I got a translator And we're walking around in these camps. It was August at that point. And it was like, it was 100 degrees, but it felt like 115 degrees. And we're walking around trying to find girls. And many people turned us away. 
I'd say, oh, is there a is there a girl here who you know got married at a young age? And some people lied. No, no, there isn't. But you could tell there was. Or we would find a girl and we would sit down and she just wouldn't want to talk about it, wouldn't want to open up. Or we would have to whisper because her husband was in the other room and we'd have to go to a different tent. And my translators, I had a couple actually that trip, would get really frustrated, not only from people telling us no, but we're walking around in the heat. And one of my translators wound up fainting. And it was just becoming a lot. And um, at that point, just felt like everything was going against me. But I went back. So I returned home to my my house in Lebanon, decided to go back to West Baca, give it another shot. And that second trip, I wound up finding girls who started to open up to me. And I'll never forget the first girl who made me cry in an interview. And I thought that I was just desensitized to traumatic stories because you know how it is when you're working as a journalist, especially as as a producer at a TV station where I was, every day you're just getting reports. Someone died in a car accident. Someone was shot. A little kid was shot. A little kid got ran over. And it, it sounds terrible to someone maybe who's listening to this who's not a journalist, but for us, we just see it so much that suddenly for me, I was no longer feeling sad the way I used to from a sad story. But the first girl who made me cry was, she's in my story as Zaina, but I actually changed her name. Her name is not really Zaina. She asked me to to change it. When she was 14, she was forced to marry a 53-year-old man who she had hardly met before. I mean, he literally saw her one time when she was 14, and he decided he wanted her. And so in this story, there's almost a a level of pedophilia because her parents weren't trying to look for a suitor for her. He found her and then told her parents, I'll give you a $5,000 dowry, and I'll give your daughter a house and a better life if you let me marry her. And they gave her no choice. As she's telling me her story and we're sitting in this camp She's breastfeeding her seven-month-old daughter. Uh, She was 17 at the time. And she was telling me that uh, when she got married, she was literally doing the dishes in her little apartment in Lebanon. They had just come from Syria. And this man walked in. He's a sheikh, which is in Islam, almost like the priest or the rabbi of the wedding. He's the one who officiates it. He walks into her house and tells her, do you accept this man as your husband? And she went in her room and got changed and came out and her parents made her say yes. And the 53 year old was waiting in the car and she got in the car and I'm asking her for every single detail. You know, then what did you do? Then what did you do? So she tells me she got in his car and I said, did you guys talk during the ride? And she said, no. And I said, how are you feeling in that car? And she just didn't respond. And I looked up from my notebook and she was crying. And she had been so strong so far in that interview. And so I felt like a jerk. Like I was just this American (laughs) trying to expand my portfolio, trying to tell a really big investigative story. 
And I could have easily been in her position had I just been maybe born in a different situation. But I was lucky because my mom and dad had the chance to go to America and I was born here. But uh, turned off my recorder and I put down my notebook and I started to cry too. And I told her, it's okay, you can cry. And in that moment, what I didn't realize was happening was I ended up gaining her trust even more. And so she started telling me that she lived with this old man. Well, old, you know, to her. And he was scary looking, you know, he had like white hair and a big belly. And she would be petrified every day of when he would come home because he would rape her every single night. And when she got pregnant by the age of, I think, 15, 15 or 16, he told her, her father, that the child wasn't his and that she had cheated on him because, you know, he's an older man. There's no way, you know, that he would have gotten this young girl pregnant. And the father and the brother believed him and uh, would beat her while she was pregnant. She showed me, <clears throat> she saw it welts on her body. And they pretty much disowned her. So she gave birth alone. I think there was one other person with her, but it wasn't from her family. And is now stuck raising this child by herself. Uh, and this man refuses to give her any money, to even talk to her or look at her. Her, her life, as far as she knows it, is over. It was taken from her. So that was a really changing moment in my trip and in my process of writing the story because all those obstacles that I was going through trying to find these girls and get them to open up it didn't matter anymore because what this girl went through and what the next several girls I was going to talk to had gone through it was nothing like what I my challenges, quote unquote, were nothing compared to that. And it was worth going through these challenges to try to get their stories out to the public. And um, she had agreed, Zaina had agreed to talk to me because she said if her story could help prevent girls from getting married in the future, then it's worth it. Well, that's a pretty amazing story. And it's, you know, you do do a great job with the story that you've written for the Times of Israel of just you know, telling those, those stories, you, you hear their voices, you hear their experiences. They're not, you know, you're not doing it. You're not telling it in an emotional way because there's a weight to the stories they have to tell. It's pretty, pretty astounding. So did you pitch the story as you were writing it or did you write the story and then, and then take it around and, and, and tried to sell it? From how many times I was told, no, I knew the story really needed to be developed before I tried to pitch it. So even though Zaina to me, changed the story, I knew it wasn't ready. And it wasn't until I met a girl who told me she tried to kill herself so many times that she's lost count that I realized, oh, okay, this is the angle. And that wasn't even into, until seven months into my trip at the very end. All I knew was I needed to keep exploring this topic of early marriage and the, the angle would come and the story would come. And then after that, the pitch would come later. But it was the moment Salwa told me that she's lost count of how many times she's tried to kill herself that I knew the story, that I had found it. And after her, there was one other girl 
who told me she tried to kill herself. And so after the two suicide stories, then I started writing. Then I started pitching. Then I started getting told no. <laughs> I was told, yeah. While I was interviewing these girls across Lebanon, I was also interviewing these experts on child marriage. So I would set up phone calls with Girls Not Brides, UNICEF, some other like local NGOs in Lebanon that work to try to end child marriage. And I was learning quite quickly that even though there are all these movements to try to end child marriage, it was going to be pretty much impossible in Lebanon, especially because the Lebanese parliament has pretty much been taken over by Hezbollah. Hezbollah is a group that some people call it a terrorist group. Some people do not believe it's a terrorist group. But regardless, they are trying to pretty much create a state within Lebanon. They want to take it over politically, in the military. And the leader of Hezbollah had made a statement, I believe in March of 2017, that said people who are trying to end child marriage are working for the devil. It was something like that. I'm paraphrasing. Hezbollah believes that you should leave it up to each religion on whether child marriage should be legal. So the odds of Lebanon passing a rule that you have to be 18 to get married is very slim. And, you know, I appreciate the efforts of all these groups fighting to try to make 18 the legal age. But I knew in reality that was never going to happen. I could be wrong. There's hope for one day. But I think right now that's never going to happen. They're fighting against the political uh, environment, but also the one that's cultural. Exactly. Exactly. Because as much as early marriage has grown because of the Syrian crisis, it's existed long before that. This is a cultural issue. It just happened to grow due to the crisis. Yeah. Tell me more. Yeah. So I'm collecting all this data, you know, getting all these interviews for my future article. And um, another game changing interview happened that really blew my mind. And that was when I met Salwa, another fake name. She asked me to use a fake name. And that's when she told me that she had lost track of how many times, you know, she tried to kill herself. I knew I had enough. At this point, it was November. And I was leaving Lebanon in December. And I knew I had enough for a story. But something told me, you know what, keep going out, keep interviewing girls. There's got to be more traumatic stories out there, you know? Because the only thing stopping me from having ridiculously traumatic eye-opening pieces was just the number of girls I had talked to. This story really needed someone to talk to as many people as possible, as many girls as possible. That was the only way of trying to figure out how early marriage is psychologically impacting young girls. You had to talk to as many girls as possible. So at that point, I had about like nine girls with really traumatic stories, in my opinion. I knew there was more out there, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I go to this area called Baalbek, which is just outside West Bekaa. There's a lot of Syrians there. And I found this organization that tries to help child brides. And they took me to this camp. And they said, I know there's a girl here who got married when she was really young. <clears throat> she was in a very bad marriage. You know, she told us she got beat and all this stuff. We're going to, we'll help you find her. We go to her tent. 
she's not home. And I thought, oh my gosh, Baalbek is like three and a half hours from my house. I came all the way here to find this girl. She's not home. And there was this other girl there who was about 20 years old. She said, I got married when I was young. I can talk to you. And I was like, okay. We go into her camp or her tent and we sit down. And this is Salwa. She starts telling me that when the Syrian war started, she was 13. She moved to Lebanon and her dad died. And when her dad died, her mom said, you need to go back to Syria and you need to marry your cousin, who she had never met, by the way. Because once a father figure is out of the picture, women in the Middle East, specifically during the Syrian war, can feel less protected. Her mother thought she was protecting Salwa by, you know, forcing her to get married to this man who was 27 at the time. So Selwa goes back to Syria and gets married and enters this very abusive relationship. She told me that her husband was an alcoholic, and every time he was drunk, he would want to sleep with her. And if she refused him, he would beat her. And I asked, what would he do exactly? She said he would drag her around the floor by her hair, slam her head into the wall, whip her with his belt. So she stopped saying no to sex, and she would just do it. Finally, she decided she's going to kill herself. And so first she tried chugging bleach. She said one day uh, he had come home drunk, you know, wanted to sleep with her. She said she would be right back, went into the kitchen, chugged bleach, and came back into the room. And she thought, all right, this will be the last time. And I said, well, what happened? She said, I woke up in the morning, and I was disappointed. I said, how did you feel in the morning? And that's when she said that line, F you, God, which is a terrible line. And part of me didn't want to publish it. I myself am a religious person. And so I didn't know if that line was ethical, but I thought it did capture how she felt in the moment, which was completely, completely devastated and depressed. And that was the point of the story, is I wanted to show the psychological impact of these girls. And so I had to publish that line. But regardless, she went on to tell me she doesn't even know how many times she's tried killing herself. She's tried it so much. In the course of their marriage and in the course of them having four kids, she would slit her wrists. She would continue chugging poison. One time she tried to jump off of a roof, but her sister stopped her. And as she's telling me the story, Literally, just like time stopped. Everything just stopped and my heart sunk to my stomach. It was kind of like that moment I had with Zena, where I realized this story is much bigger than I thought. It's bigger than myself. It's bigger than just some article. This is something that is severely impacting young girls. And I can't believe it's hardly been reported. After I interviewed Selva that day, that's when I said, okay, I found the story and I found the angle. And that is that Syrian child brides are so psychologically impacted that some are even trying to kill themselves. I go home and I start doing research. And I was shocked to see that there is little to no data on suicide among Syrian child brides. Now, how could that be? 
if the Syrian war has been happening since 2011 and the rise in early marriage started in 2011, and there has been all this media coverage of the war, why has practically nobody talked about suicide among Syrian refugee girls? Two things I've come to realize why. Number one, to get a girl to tell you that she has tried to kill herself, nearly impossible. Number two, a day-to-day reporter, when when you have to turn a story on deadline, who has seven months to go from refugee camp to refugee camp trying to find girls, number one, who got married young, number two, who entered abusive relationships, number three, who then decided to try to kill themselves due to those relationships, number four, survived the suicide attempt, and finally, number five, feel like they can open up to you. There are too many obstacles for a reporter to go through to try to tell a story like this. I spent a lot of money trying to tell this story. I had to pay taxi drivers to take me to these camps. I had to pay translators. And for for what you get paid for a freelance story, it's not going to be enough to cover what you spent telling it. So I knew I had a special story because quite frankly, nobody else has told it. And I thought, okay, I'm going to publish this. Perhaps I can publish it with a big American outlet because this is an exclusive scoop. And this really shows what girls are going through on a level that perhaps hasn't been reported before. And not to make this about selling the story. I mean, to me, the most important part was being able to tell these girls stories. But But at the end, you have to, you know, sell it. You have to get it somewhere where people can see it. Exactly. For example, the New York Times. How many eyes are going to see that compared to a no-name news outlet that's maybe just starting? The point was, I want as many people to know about this as possible. I want all the people who read the tattoo article and got fired up to get fired up about the fact that these girls are being forced to get married and have to say goodbye to their childhood. Perhaps that'll make the reader, you know, appreciate their circumstances a lot more. Or maybe it'll make the reader want to pay more attention to what's going on in Syria, or maybe want to donate some money to NGOs trying to help. I don't know. I just, the more people who see it, I believed, the better. You can sort of imagine how crushed I was when every single editor told me no. What would the, why did they tell you no, generally? So I came home in December with the story pretty much finished, put some finishing touches in it and started pitching in January. Between January and July, I pitched to 33 places. Everybody said no. The 34th said yes. Now, why did each person say no? Each editor had their own reason. Some of them were similar to the others. One that I tend to see is just, this sounds like a great story, but we can't take it at this time. And sometimes I would respond and say, you know, is there a reason? Some wouldn't answer. Some said they don't take freelance work from Lebanon because when they have a bureau there, they won't accept uh, reports from a freelancer. Uh, I'll never forget one of those places. One news outlet came very close 
to purchasing the article and they got me very excited because this was a very big name. And I thought, wow, a lot of people are going to see this if this publisher takes it. And at the end, he said, this just isn't timely enough. It just isn't timely enough. What makes it relevant right now, today? I tried to make the argument that because on July 3rd, the Syrian government called on refugees to return, saying, you know, it successfully cleared large areas of terrorists. But for many refugee girls in Lebanon, the damage is done. You know, the crisis has forced them into marriage and there's no turning back. He said, that's just not enough of a hook. Wow. So, you know, over those six months, is it six? It's about six. Um, things would happen in the news. You know, things would happen in Syria. And I would say, oh, okay, I could link it to that. I could link it to this. And, and on July 3rd, when the Syrian government was saying, you know, these big areas are now safe, I'm like, ooh, okay, I'm going to link it to that. And um, I really avoided pitching to the Times of Israel because I was so scared that if I published with them, I would never be allowed back in Lebanon. But ultimately, when they said yes, I had to weigh what was more important to me. Do I want to make a controversial move as a Lebanese girl and possibly be looked down upon by my family and friends, but still be able to tell this story? And ultimately, I decided, no, I, uh, I did all this to tell these girls' stories, so I'm going to go with Times of Israel. Wow, that's a pretty amazing story. You, you you know, when we started this, I knew you, you had a pretty big story to tell, and it, and it is a pretty big story to tell, and I'm glad that you were able to, to publish it. And it was published uh, August 1st, right? Correct. Okay. Have you gotten, has there been any feedback? Has there been any response to it? The response has been greater than I expected. It, the story itself, I have it open right now, and it, and it says how many shares it's gotten. It's, it says it's gotten 2,245 shares. I don't know how accurate that is, but if that many people have shared it, you know, I, I feel really satisfied. So, so what's next for you? That's the big question. <laughs> well, you seem to be somebody who, who once they, they, they identify something that they stick to it until the, <laughs> until that they, they, they find the success in it, you know, this is a pretty a pretty amazing story, and I encourage people who've listened to this podcast to read the story and share it. Of course, it's it's really powerful. It's 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 a very human story, and you know I I'm sure that 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 wherever you go as an investigative journalist, you're you're going to have some sort of greater success. Lisa, thank you for coming on the podcast. This is great. Mike, I was so honored to do this, and thank you so much for your great questions. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about good journalism. It takes a lot of people to put out our weekly podcast. Nicola Grisco edited this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Nicholas Hunter helped with our web content. And Amelia Brust helped with our pre-production. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Would you like to find out more about our podcast, including upcoming guests and possible live events? Go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. You can also find us on Twitter, at All Journalism, and look for us on Facebook. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. The What's Working in Washington podcast. 
with your host, Jonathan Aberman. We share this region's innovative, entrepreneurial, and creative spirit. This podcast tells impressive stories of passion and spunk taking place here in the D.C. region. It illustrates how the nation's capital is anything but the stuffy, bureaucratic, politics-only reputation it tries to shed. The What's Working in Washington podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC.